Hey, hey, welcome back to Live Bold and Boss Up. It is your girls, Steph and Ash. Today we chat with Nate Klemp. He is a fantastic author, writer. He just wrote the book open. We have it here in our hands. It's not even out yet. It's coming out February. This is his fourth book he's written. And can we just tell you, this is the perfect podcast episode for right in the beginning of the new year, new year, new you. This book is so on point with what everyone has going on right now. It talks about social media addiction, right? Like how we just pick up the phones and go through our social and have that desire to go on. But he, he puts like words to why we do that Mm-hmm. and then really like dissects it. And then not only that, but he really shares with you how you can fix that and turn it around in tools to get better. Right. He really speaks to you. As I was reading the book, I felt like he was sitting there talking to me. He just explains it in such a good way and I could relate to every single thing he was talking about. So, I mean, I was already just, you know, relating to it and applying it. Right. Right. I I can't wait to finish it. We just started. I wanted to finish it before, but just, you know, right? I probably was on social media <laughs> too much and I didn't I didn't do that. Um so a little bit about Nate, guys. He had spent years studying philosophy at Stanford. He got his PhD at Princeton. He was a professor for a number of years. Um obviously he's a philosopher, a writer. He's a mindfulness entrepreneur. He co-authored a couple other books that are New York Times bestsellers, including Start Here and The 80-80 Marriage, which I feel like I wanna read after this. This, I just love the way he writes and how it reads is so easy and... And he writes that one with his wife, which it would be nice to get both of their yeah, perspectives. that's a really good point because mm-hmm. you're you're not just getting the male version or the female version, you're getting both, mm-hmm. which is kind of, that's the whole point. <laughs> right. Yeah. He, his, all of his um, works has been featured in the LA Times, Psychology Today, Thrive Global. Um, he's also had appearances on Good Morning America, Talks at Google. He's also the founding partner of Mindful, which is one of the far the foremost mindful training companies. Mm-hmm. I I just love that because he really dives into this work and really articulates what the issues are and then has, like I said, real tools to help you, or boss bites as we call them, to help you move from that and grow. Mm-hmm. He's great. I know, perfect New Year, New You podcast episode. Check it out. Thank you so much for being on our podcast and sending us these books and these awesome hats. These are so cool. Everyone in the office wants them. (laughs) And, you know, so I didn't finish the book yet. We started. I I know Steph started, too. And wow, it's a lot to unpack and uncover because but I think it's important to to think about this because we're all super addicted to like maybe instant gratification on social media, right? I I yeah. was just chatting with um, some of my coworkers the other day about, I'll, I'll just pick up my phone and go straight to Instagram, but I don't even think about it. It's almost like automatic, which is 
if you think about that, that's yeah. completely unhealthy. Totally. Yep. Mm -hmm. I actually uh, thought about you this morning because I turned my alarm off. I was laying in bed and then I was like trying to force myself to get out of bed. But then I picked up my phone again and I was going to hit on social media and I was like, no, nice. I am not. I interrupted <laughs> it and I awesome. put it down before I even had a chance to look yeah. at anything. So you were already, you know, making uh, moves in my, yeah. that's in my great. brain and my actions. Right. So. Yeah. Nice. It's working. I love that. Do you always do that? You always no, go right to social media no, when you wake up? No, never. But for some reason, I just didn't want to get out of bed this morning and I was trying to delay the process so that I was just like, you know, looking for something to do. <laughs> but I don't know about you guys, but the more stressed and tired I feel, the more I want to do that first thing in the morning. Yeah. Like I, I know that I'm having a stressful day when I'm like, oh, ESPN app how I want to see what's inside of you or like Instagram. <laughs> right. What do you have for me today? And I'm like, oh, it must be a stressful day. Right. Yes. Because it's just mindless. Yeah. You can just go off in another yeah. world. But so Nate, I want to I want to get into the book more, but just um, yep. to, to tell our listeners a little bit about you. And I want to hear the background on why you decided to write this book. But you this is your fourth book or your fifth book. You have fourth. four books. OK, this is your fourth book. Yeah. Um, and then this book, Open, is not even officially released yet. We have one of your copies. And February 13th is the big day. Is that right? That's the day. Indeed. So very exciting. Um, Ash and I, we've started into this book, as, we, as we've said. And it's already, um, I was mentioning earlier, I felt like you were talking to me. So I just love your style. I love you know, the way you, you write. So I, I really appreciate you already speaking to me and making an impact. Mm. So how did you decide to write this book? What gave you the inspiration or, or the motives behind it? I always think of books for me as an opportunity to try to solve a problem that I'm experiencing that I think other people might also be experiencing and that I have no solution for. So in this case, several years ago, I just started to notice this experience of my mind getting smaller. And what I mean by that is like, every time I would experience an uncomfortable emotion or some sort of sensation in my body that I didn't like or a scary thought, I would have this almost instantaneous urge to reach for my screen and almost like self-medicate with a quick hit of dopamine or political outrage. And as I started to see this in myself, I, I realized I wasn't alone here, that in some ways, I think you could argue this is the problem of our time, that you know, if you listen to most conversations these days, you'll hear people talk about how they're stressed, they're distracted, they're on their devices more than they wanna be, they're overwhelmed, and then you'll often hear them expressing judgments about some other, maybe it's a family member or the opposite political party. But underneath all of those statements, there's some form of what I would call closure, like a subtle turning away rather than turning toward life or turning toward other people we disagree with. And that's why I think this is the problem of our time, that this is happening all day, every day. It's totally ubiquitous. And yet it's almost invisible. Like it's it's operating unconsciously below the radar of awareness. And so I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to both 
explore what this closure thing is and, and go deep into the heart of screen addiction and polarization. But then more important to explore what are the practices and tools that we can all use to be a little bit more open in this time where it feels like we're, we're living in unprecedented times of, of uncertainty and chaos. Mm-hmm. I'm so wow. glad you were able to put that, that piece into words. Like everybody knows they're on social media too mm-hmm. much. I don't think they know why, or I don't think they know like the, like you said, the closure, the close, how you kind of close your, close yourself off to nature or human interaction that, that I think that was really important for me to hear. Cause right. I, I've never like really nailed that part down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what I'm always looking for as a writer. I'm always looking for problems that we all know we have on some level, but we don't quite have the vocabulary or the words to say what it is or why we're experiencing it. To me, those are the interesting things like let's, oh, let's explore that. Let's get a language for that, bring it into awareness, and then we can actually be more skillful with these things. Mm-hmm. I love in the book too, you, and I don't want to give away too much, but you put yourself in the shoes of someone who is on the screen, like, 24 seven, pretty much you're like in it for three whole days. And then you kind of remove yourself from it. And, but you live it, you live it and you tell your family you're, (laughs) this is how it's going to be. Um, so it's not like you're just speaking towards it because you see other people, but you actually put yourself in that situation and you lived it. So you can speak from experience on the feelings and, and how it felt. Yeah, the idea behind that was, you know, the old school parenting advice that's like, if you catch your kids smoking, have them smoke the whole pack or have them smoke two packs <laughs> and they'll never smoke again. Right. And the, the idea behind that, by the way, I'm not endorsing that. <laughs> but but the idea behind that is that there's something that happens through overindulgence that could potentially get rid of the craving. Mm-hmm. You know, usually we're trying to like avoid And this is actually a practice in tantric Buddhism. So I decided, well, it'd be kind of interesting to apply this practice. Traditionally, it's applied to like sex or alcohol or decadent eating. But I was like, wouldn't it be interesting to apply this to my screens? And so that was where I got this idea. So as you say, I had spent like three days all day, every day. And instead of doing what I usually do, which is like try to avoid my screen and try to set boundaries with my screens, I just allowed myself. It was like going into an all you can eat restaurant where I was like, I'm going to eat everything until I'm just like passed out, throwing up on the floor. Uh. So so I did that. <laughs> and, and it was really interesting because I learned a few really interesting things. One is it completely destroyed my sleep. And I thought that was interesting because you hear a lot of talk about how screens are detrimental to sleep, but I felt that firsthand. Like I was up at 2.40 a.m. every morning during that experiment. There was no going back to sleep. Not like it was just, I was totally wired. Wow. But the most important thing that I learned is what was keeping me coming back was this experience of novelty that my screen was giving me. And I think that's true for all of us. So what I mean by that is like, when you open up your phone and you go through the lock screen, what's driving most of us is this desire to see something new, 
something unexpected. So, you know, you open your text and like, oh, there's a new text. Open your email. Ooh, there's a new email. Open Instagram. Ooh, fresh feed. Mm-hmm. And this, we actually have this novelty bias wired into our brain through evolution. And so what I was able to do through three days of this is get to a point where I had exhausted all the novelty there was for my phone to give me. So by the end of it, like I woke up, I had the thought, this is when I usually grab my phone and go to the bathroom and, you know, check out ESPN or whatever. And for the first time in a decade, there was no craving, no desire. Like I'd, I didn't even want to see my phone. And, and so it was just helpful, I guess, on two levels. One, to see that that's a kind of crazy, weird, interesting path away from screen addiction, but also just to see that it's this novelty thing that keeps bringing us back, trying to get something new, some new interesting tidbit of information or news. Right. Yeah, I, I, I hung on every single word you were saying because I was like, yeah, why do we? Why do we just aimlessly pick up our phone and hit social media? Mm-hmm. And that, that makes sense. So did you feel like at the end of the three days, you, you, nothing was new? Is that what you were? Yeah, and the analogy I use is if you think back to like high school when you had like your high school crush, right? If at the time you could have followed that person around for three days, all day, every day, and watch them get up and take their night guard off and go to the <laughs> bathroom and like, you know, fall into these like petty bouts of jealousy with their friends, like that would go a long way to just completely dissolving the mystery. And and there would be nothing new there and you would completely lose any desire or attraction you might have. And I felt like it was the same with my phone. Like by going all the way with my phone, I was able to see everything there was to see. And it it kind of destroyed the mystery, the novelty of it all. Mm-hmm. So how did that help you kind of start going, okay, now how do I what's the next step right after that? What, what was your thought process there? Yeah, well, I think that exploring the world of devices and polarization was really important for me as a first step, but it wasn't the full journey. And, you know, there are a lot of books on like, there's a book called How to Break Up With Your Phone and books on how to overcome, you know, screen addiction, things like that. They're very valuable, but I kind of have it like that's really just step one. Yes, we need to figure out how to use our devices more skillfully. We need to understand what's driving us toward our devices. But I think what's even more important is figuring out the second part of the equation, which is, you know, if screen addiction is what keeps us closed, the second part of the equation is how can we be more open, especially in a time like today that's a little bit chaotic and crazy where we're constantly closing down to our own minds and each other. So that was kind of like the next step of the journey. Okay, well, how do we cultivate this more open state of mind? Mm -hmm. What is the most surprising thing that you learned while writing this book? Most surprising would probably be the power of, I call it in the book, opening to the enemy. That's a pretty extreme way of putting it, but the basic practice is opening to the other side politically. I think as we all know, there's this tendency 
to basically close down to anyone who believes something different from us, anyone who disagrees with us, anyone who votes for the other candidate. And that tendency has been getting so much stronger with each passing year. You know, in 1980, Gallup ran a poll. They found that 47% of Americans felt warm and favorable toward the opposite political party. Now that number has basically dropped in half. It's like 25% of Americans think that. Not only that, there were some political scientists who found 20% of Democrats and Republicans think that the other side of the political spectrum lacks the basic traits to be human, <laughs> that they behave like animals, and that we would be better off if large numbers of the opposite party simply died, oh, right? So, so this is 20%. Wow. That's a huge number. That is. And I think we all feel this on some level in our social lives or our families, right? There's this, and it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on, it's kind of the same, whichever side you're on. So I decided, you know, I live in Boulder, Colorado, which is this kind of liberal enclave where people here are not very excited about guns. <laughs> I believe in things like gun control. And so I decided it'd be really interesting to immerse myself in the other side. So I, I went and enrolled in a National Rifle Association course to get my concealed carry permit. And that just kind of totally blew my mind because by the end of that training, I realized like these, these folks that I had seen as the enemy, they became friends. And I, I didn't end up or agreeing with everything they thought or believed. And I didn't really end up changing my position necessarily, but it changed my whole view of like the other side, the political enemy. I started to see, we are all trying our best. We're all basically doing the best that we can. We have the shared humanity. And so that kind of like completely blew my mind. Wow. Very interesting. I like that. I love that you did that. Like what? Yeah, it was. <laughs> and I encourage everybody to do it no matter what side of the spectrum, you know, mm -hmm. if you're really conservative, like go hang out with, you know, whatever the, the pro-abortion group that's around you. But, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard. It's really challenging. But increasingly, and this is another effect of social media, that we're getting news and information that's all coming from a single point of view. It's creating this very siloed source of information. And as a result, we can't even understand the other side. So I think doing something like this face-to-face -face is a real strong antidote to that. Not necessarily easy, but really powerful. Wow, I agree. I think that would be great if we all did that. We're all human, you know. We yeah. All, right. We all are trying to survive this world together. So by doing that, you yeah. can it opens your eyes. Right. Sure. Instead of kind of like you said, closing off, you can think, okay, maybe there's something something to learn here. Maybe there's mm -hmm. something that I'm not getting from, like you said, mainstream media, which I think is kind of obvious, right? Yeah. Wow. Absolutely. Um, I have a question about um, kids and screen time. Obviously, this is, I have two kids, Ash has two kids. I know, I believe you have a um I have a, a daughter. Kid, a daughter. Yeah. And um, how do you navigate that whole world with like them, like having such available access to screens and shows and games? And I don't know, I like my kids, I can already see it. Them like being drawn mm -hmm. to the phone and all like you go out to dinner and you see everyone on their phones. And 
at baseball, all the kids are sitting on their screens during breaks and it's just like, it drives me nuts and I don't know how to stop mm -hmm. it. It's like a vicious like cycle. It's, it is. How do you stop that? Yeah, well, I think on one level, what makes it so difficult, and I'm sure you've experienced this, is there's a collective action problem here, which is that if every other kid has a phone, if every other kid is on TikTok and Snapchat and Instagram, then there's actually a pretty high social cost that your kid pays to not having a smartphone or not being on those platforms. Mm -hmm. So as a society, I think it would be really useful to think about that collective action problem and create incentives that make it a little bit easier on us parents Right. So there are now states like Utah that are talking about banning TikTok for kids under 18. And I, that's pretty extreme. And there's a lot of people who think that's not a good idea. But I actually think that's a really interesting idea because, you know, when it comes to things like gambling, we say as a society, hey, this is really addictive. We're not going to let you do this till you're 18. We all know that the same is pretty much true of something like TikTok or social media, that it's addictive, that it creates anxiety, especially in young girls, that it can lead to eating disorders. Also, like, so we know it's bad. We know it's addictive, like something like gambling. So why not have those restrictions at a social level? I think that would be amazing because then it takes the burden off us parents. We're trying to say like, no, you shouldn't be on your phone, but everybody has a phone, dad, right? So, so that at the social level, I think that's where we have to start. But then the reality is we're not living in that world yet, right? This is still like totally available. A lot of kids have this. And so what I would recommend is having a lot of conversation with your kids about these technologies so that they're aware that there are real costs to these technologies. And, you know, I think it's okay as a parent to set some real boundaries and restrictions like, Phones don't go in your bedroom. Phones stay outside when you're sleeping. You know, your phones are off at 9 p.m. or 8.30 p.m. Uh, you have a certain amount of time each day for certain apps or games, things like that. So, you know, I but I do think it's a really challenging problem that we're all trying to figure our way out of. Yeah, I know yeah. that's great advice. Well, and I noticed too, like we're diving into a rabbit hole, but like my kids will be in a slightly negative mood to extremely negative mood when mm. they're on their devices for a while. Mm. And I can tell the difference when they haven't had screen time and they've been outside, they are much more pleasant and positive to deal with, which I thought was really interesting. And I, I kind of, yeah. I related that to, to the social media and, and just screen time in general. I didn't do any study on it, but that's kind of what I've seen as, as a mom and my kids. Mm -hmm. Well, it'd be kind of fun not to have them do the three-day screen binge. That's probably way too much. <laughs> but what could be really fun for your kid to do with your kids is to be like, yeah, you can have an hour to do whatever you want on your screens, but I want you to pay attention to how you feel right now. And then after that hour is over, we're going to check in again. And I want you to pay attention to how you feel. Mm -hmm. And I think actually bringing awareness to that difference between their mood or their experience at the beginning and the end is a really powerful practice that we usually don't do. Cause you're right. Usually like I'll speak for myself when I go on Instagram, if I stay there for a while, almost 
100% of the time I feel worse when I get off because I'm like, oh, these people have so many more followers than me and why don't people like my stuff? And I thought that post was so clever and only two people commented on, you know, like I go into that whole thing, which makes me feel worse than going for a walk or something. So bringing awareness and, and giving your kids that opportunity to become aware of that could be a really powerful tool. Mm-hmm. I love that. I like that. I'm over here taking notes because I thought that was yeah. great. <laughs> Conscious screen binging. Yeah. Oh, that. <laughs> I love I'm going to start doing that myself as well. I mean, I can already. Totally. I already know. Yeah, I already know. Yeah. Too. But. I feel worse. I feel like, oh my gosh, I have to do X, Y, and Z. And you, you just, you feel worse about the chore that you have to do. It's like more of a chore, right? Mm-hmm. After you get off the screen. Mm-hmm. I feel less Ye- like I want to be productive. Totally. Yeah. And I I would say that it's not our fault that we're addicted to these things. Like they have been designed very carefully to exploit a lot of weaknesses of the human brain. So we talked about novelty. That's often called variable rewards, right? There's that piece to it. But then there's also all these other things baked into these apps like streaks and social reward strategies like likes and Mm -hmm. thumbs ups and hearts and this thing called the endowment effect, which exploits our aversion to risk. Basically like, you know, you spend all this time on Instagram gathering all these followers and you don't wanna stop because you spend all that time gathering all these followers, right? So, so there are all these like subtle design elements baked in that are creating this predicament for all of us. And I just think that's important because, you know, I can start shaming myself. Like, why am I doing this? And it's like, well, you know, we're up against some of the the most sophisticated AI algorithms in all of history. This is not easy. Right. What would you tell someone who like, this is what they have to do for their job to do like, you know, increase followers. I'm thinking for the podcast, even like sometimes I feel like we need to be on there more on TikTok and, you know, promoting it more um, than we are. But like some, a lot of people's jobs rely on that and to get, in that and I don't know, like how do, how do you balance that if you do it for a living and then, you know, just having that feeling of being on the screen too much? Yeah, well, I am right there with you. As a writer, my job is both to write books, but then that's only half my job. The other half of my job is to promote the heck out of all those books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how do you do that? Well, you know, social media turns out to be pretty important there. so like you and like a lot of people, I actually have to be on there for my career. It's important for me to be on there. So one thing I think that I found to be really useful is time boxing distraction. What I mean by that is I try to actually schedule time in my day for distractions. So for me, it's often the lunch hour where I'll be eating lunch And I have like a half hour, 45 minutes where I say to myself, this is my time to go just like totally crazy and gorge on like digital dopamine hits. And I'm going to allow myself to go on Instagram and read all the news sites and like, you know, do whatever I want. It's kind of like my little dopamine playground that I have. And that becomes really useful for me because then earlier in the day, if I have that urge, I'm like, no, 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 no. I got my dopamine dessert coming Mm up. I need to check Instagram now. Right. And obviously there are times where like, if I'm posting something in the morning, I have to go on to post because maybe that's a better time than later in the day or whatever. 
But I, I think that has been a really powerful hack for me because to just try to never go there creates a lot of restraint and, and you know, you can kind of like, like indulge more mm-hmm. based on that, that feeling of being constricted or restrained. Um, but having the small window is really useful how, for me. How do you get motivated again or re-motivated right after that lunch hour to get back into your work afternoon? Because that's what I find. I I will go on there, whether it's purposeful or not. And then I'm like, shoot, I don't, I'm not motivated now all of a sudden because I yeah. went on social media. Yeah, I have that same experience. In fact, I'll have this experience sometimes where I'll just, almost feel a little dazed. Like I'm, I've just been time traveling through the world and learning about all these wars and, you know, random people's vacations and stuff <laughs> like that. Yeah. So I, I totally feel that. I, I think like, you know, sometimes just going for a walk around the block, getting outside. Nature is such a great antidote to screen land, as I call it. That- um, just taking a few breaths, you know, something to get grounded. Right. No, that's a that's a really good point. I love Steph. I'm taking your notes after this. I, know, I love I'm, it. I'm taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we've really hammered in and like beat a dead horse on the social media piece. But like, open yeah. your book. Open is so much more than that too. It's like it's about meditation and how to do that and and the way you do it. Can you give us yep. you know some insight on that that part? That's a, that's a huge part. Yeah. Well. I think of meditation as happening in two primary ways. One is the way we usually think of it, which I would call formal meditation, where the idea is, you know, you're going to sit in silence, try to seal yourself away from the world and distraction. Maybe you go on a retreat, something like that. And that's a really powerful practice. something I do every day. I think of it almost like the, it's like the strengthening and conditioning program for our mind that allows us to live more skillfully in the midst of all this distraction. So think of it as like bicep curls for your brain, right? Um, so there's that kind of practice. For some people though, that kind of practice doesn't really land well because they're like, hey, I got a job, I've got kids. I don't have time to just sit there for an hour a day staring blankly at my wall. like." be cool, but that, that's just not in the cards for me. So there's this other form of meditation that I think of as street opening or street meditation. In the book, for example, I spent a, a day at my local Costco and I decided to turn Costco into my meditation retreat center. So like I just went there for the whole day. I didn't, I wasn't there to buy anything. I just would like meditate on the outdoor furniture for a little while and then do some walking meditation through like produce and the meat aisles and then go to the pharmacy, do another like 20, 30 minute meditation. (laughs) I know it sounds crazy. That's a really extreme example, but this is a practice. What's so cool about it is we can do it anytime, anywhere. Like you don't have to reserve a day to go to Costco. (laughs) If you think about your day, there are all of these random throwaway moments where you're waiting at the grocery store, you're waiting in the hug and go line to pick up your kids, you're in the Uber, you're waiting for the elevator, right? Like there are all these moments where we have time, maybe it's only two or three minutes to meditate. 
But what do we usually do? We, we grab our phone. And so what if instead of grabbing our phone 100% of the time, we only grabbed our phone 50% of the time and the other 50% of the time, we just took the two minutes while we're sitting in that jam store to like check in with our breath, to really, you know, see our experience in the present moment with open awareness. And I, I talk about how to do that in the book, but, but that I think is, is maybe like the most powerful practice and the real practice of meditation is bringing it directly into contact with the chaos of, of our daily life. Mm -hmm. Wow. I feel like if everyone did that, even 50% of the time, the world would be a much better place. Yeah, think about how much less road rage we'd have yeah. if people got in their car and just took like a breath, you know? Right. <laughs> totally. No, that that was a good boss bite, as we call it. Um, mm -hmm. Lots of good nice. boss bites today. Um, anything else that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure our listeners hear about your book before we go? I would just say, um, you know, whether you read the book or not, I would encourage everybody just to play around with this simple distinction between when am I closing down, turning away from something that's happening in my mind or my emotions that's uncomfortable, turning away from other people who I disagree with or who make me feel uncomfortable. So like seeing in just the flow of your everyday life when that's happening, becoming aware of that, that's that itself is a powerful practice because Without awareness, there's really nothing we can do. You know, Ashley was talking earlier about like when it when there's no thought at all and you just grab your phone and you're on Instagram and you never even think about it, there is no freedom there, right? Like you are just acting on the basis of hardwired habit and it's almost like you're, you're an automaton or a robot or something, right? Oh, I'm so, so embarrassed, yes. No, no, no. no like we're, all, we're all in that boat. We're all in that camp. We're all doing that constantly. So just having a little bit of space where you can see it happening, that's the first step. And then playing around in whatever, whatever way feels comfortable for you, this practice of just turning toward some of the things that might be happening in life that make you feel uncomfortable, actually feeling the discomfort, staying present with it, in whatever way that looks like for you, maybe it's prayer, maybe it's meditation, maybe it's just taking a couple of breaths. But, but I think the more we can sort of play with that, both sides of the polarity and, and see that distinction happening, the more we can shift out of some of these habits that, that really do distract us from what matters most. Mm -hmm. That is great stuff. Thank you, Nate, so much. Mm -hmm. um, Thank you. Thanks for having me. I can't wait to finish this book. I'm so excited. Open. Oh, thank, thank you. By Nate Clint, Klemp. Um, we will make sure we get the link so everyone can buy this book as soon as it comes out. Um, thank you so much, Nate, for coming on here and, and sharing your knowledge and your research on screen time and screen addiction and mindfulness. You've been amazing. Thank you for the hats and the books. And of course. Well, thank you again for having me. Of course. And until next time, live bold and boss up. <laughs>